This month, we are continuing our study from the book of Exodus, uh, the second book of the Old Testament, if you're newer to the faith. And we are at this kind of exciting transition point uh, in the book of Exodus. Uh, as, you re- as you may remember, quite a few weeks ago when we began this, we talked about how Exodus is broken up into three basic movements. Movement one, uh, God liberates his people from slavery. Uh, The descendants of Jacob are all living in Egypt and they're fruitful and they're multiplying like bunny rabbits. And then the oppression and the slavery begins because of a cruel Pharaoh. And the conflict is intensified as God raises up a deliverer. They confront Pharaoh, there's 10 plagues. We talked about him as 10 acts of decreation, ending with the death of the firstborn. But then the Passover lamb is Yahweh's provision of a merciful substitute. And then the narrative stops in the first movement, and it becomes like this little handbook for how to celebrate Passover. And then movement two, God leads his people kind of through the deadly wilderness and brings them to himself at Sinai. And it's this journey through the wilderness. There's a period of testing. The people are testing Yahweh. Yahweh's testing the people. There's this uh, leadership consultations with Moses' father-in-law, a foreigner. And then they arrive at Sinai. There's fire and clouds and earthquakes. They are, the people of Israel are afraid, so they send Moses up the mountain, and God reveals how the covenant is going to work. There's 10 basic laws. We know them as the Ten Commandments, followed by 42 more. And the people say, sign us up. Like, we're ready to do this thing. Let me just pause the little story here and talk about these covenant laws are a summary of God's will for his partners. This is going to be really important in just a few minutes. The covenant laws are like a summary of what God's will is for his covenant partners. They come as a choice before Israel if they really want to participate in this covenant and they want to live out their calling. And their calling, as we've talked about in the, in the book of Exodus, is to bear Yahweh's name. They're supposed to represent him to all the nations, right? Uh, they're supposed to become a, a kingdom of priests, a set apart, a holy people among the nations, so that all the nations can look to Israel and see the character of God, see the image of God. Living out these commands isn't just a way to make God happy or in our modern lingo, living out the commands, living out the law isn't how you get to heaven when you die. Rather, it's how they fulfill their mission to bear God's name. It's how they fulfill their mission to be an image of God to the rest of the people on the planet. And so then today, we begin movement three. And we see that God has a plan to actually be present with his people. It's chapters 25 to 40. And to talk about that, I'm going to have to backtrack just a a little bit here and go back into chapter 24. Look at chapter 24, verses 9 to 11. I'm going to put this up on the screen. It says, Moses and Aaron and Nahab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. So what you have here is everybody in Israel camped at the base of the mountain, and now you have the elders. They go halfway up the mountain, And they see Yahweh. They see Elohim. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis luazi. I had to look that up. It's like sapphire. This bright blue is the sky. And and the word sky there is like the sky dome. It's like they're looking through the sky and they see Yahweh. 
And it says, but God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and then they ate and drank. Dude, this is awesome. This is like one of those passages that you kind of look at, and you just kind of read over, like, I don't know what that means. That's crazy. But if, just put yourself in the thing for a minute, right? They go halfway up the mountain, and they see like this sapphire bright sky. They're looking through it, and they see Yahweh standing on it. It's like they get to see God himself, and then they sit down and have a meal. Like, what kind of meal is that? What did they eat? How great was that, right? Does that seem weird to you? It's like they're living in a snow globe, and they go right to the top of the thing that's in the snow globe. Do you guys have any snow globes? They go right to the top of the mountain that's in the snow globe, and they're looking through the snow globe, and they see you holding the snow globe. Like, that's what this is a picture of. I don't know about you guys, but it, it blows my mind, right? It's like Sinai all of a sudden becomes this place where heaven and earth meet. Like, they're on earth, they're on the mountain. And yet they're peering through the veil, and they see what God is really like. Throughout the centuries, people have called places like this thin places. Places where people actually experience the supernatural, see God, where somehow the invisible becomes visible. It's like a, the barrier between the natural and the supernatural becomes very thin. And that actually happens several times in the scriptures. Like, remember Jacob is escaping with his family plan. If you've been around the, the, uh, his family system, Jacob is like escaping. If you've been around the Bible for very long, you might remember this story from back in Genesis. And he falls asleep. And he has this dream of this ladder and, and people are ascending back and forth to heaven. And, and he basically sets up a little altar there. And using my lingo, he says, this is a thin place. This is a place where heaven is actually meeting the earth. And they remember that. The same thing could be said of like the uh, disciples with Jesus going up the mountain that we call the transfiguration where all of a sudden they see Jesus like transformed, glowing as white and nuclear, and he's having conversations with Moses and Elijah. Like another one of those times where like heaven seems to meet earth. I'm going to get back to that in just a second, because that's a big part of where I'm going to talk about today. And then after the meal, after this, God invites Moses to come up to the summit of the mountain. Verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments I've written for their instruction. So Moses gets invited further up the mountain, and then you skip down to verse 15, and it says, when Moses went up the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on, the mount, on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud, to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. And then Moses entered the cloud as he went on up the mountain. He stayed on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. There's a whole bunch of stuff here. On the seventh day, the day of resting, the Sabbath day, the day of settling in, ruling with God, Moses climbs to the top of the mountain and goes into the cloud through a wall of fire, and he's there for 40 days. And then, like, what does he get when he's up there? Now we go into verse 25. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. <laughs> You're to receive your offering from me for everyone whose heart prompts them to give. Moses gets up on the mountain, through the clouds, through the fire, and God says, do a giving campaign. Isn't that right? He says, collect an offering. When you go back down, here's the first thing you do. Collect an offering, right? 
What's going on? And then look at you, you go down just a little bit further, verse 8, verse chapter 25. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make a tabernacle and all of its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Moses is going up on the mountain to collect an offering because God's going to give him detailed verbal blueprints for a sacred tabernacle. And basically, that's the rest of the book of Exodus, is all the details. I don't know how many of you guys, I love to, I work hard at reading through the Bible every single year, all the way through. It's usually at sections like chapters like 25 on in the book of Exodus that people begin to like rethink their life plan about reading through the Bible in a year. Like, are my choices about life really that good? As I'm reading about all these stones put into the breastplate of Aaron and all these like things being like, what's the use of all this? Well, here's what's interesting. The Bible is full of sometimes what seems like useless detail. And then it doesn't have some of the detail that we wished it had about what they ate at the meal. <laughs> like, I'm dying to know. Was it like chicken fingers? Like, what did they have? But they're, this meal where they're looking at God through there. There's three movements in Exodus, and I want to get into some detail here. They're rescued out of slavery. They le- they're led through a deadly wilderness, and then now they're brought into the presence of God. So as we're wrestling with passages like this, I just want to remind us that a whole bunch of this literature is Hebrew meditational literature. And I have a little video, because they can do it better than I can. I have a little video, it's about four minutes long from the Bible Project that I want us to watch, that details for a little bit, explains what Hebrew meditational literature is really all about. So if this works, let's try it. So the Bible is a collection of books written in different literary styles, like narrative, poetry, and prose. And most of us are familiar with these kinds of literature. Yeah, we all know a narrative when we see one, like the Hunger Games or the Great Gatsby. And most people can recognize poetry, whether it's Walt Whitman or the songs of Bob Dylan. And every day we're surrounded by prose and news articles or essays. Now, all of these examples are modern American literature in that they came from this time period and this region of the world. But there's also medieval English literature from another place in time or ancient Greek writings from this place in time. So each time period and culture produces its own unique kind of literature. And in order to read the Bible well, we need to keep in mind that it comes from this part of the world and was produced in this basic period of time. So what's unique about ancient Jewish literature? Well, a key feature is that it lacks a lot of details that modern readers have come to expect in stories and poems. And this makes it seem really simple. But actually, it's very sophisticated literature. Every detail that is given matters. And that's great, but the lack of detail means that stories are often loaded with ambiguities. I mean, take one of the first stories, Adam and Eve in the Garden. Where did this talking snake come from? And why did God allow him there? Why didn't Adam and Eve die on the spot like God said they would? And who's this offspring of the woman who will destroy the snake but is bitten by it? Yeah, so many puzzles in this story. And some of these are questions that we have and that are not important to what the author is focusing on. But some of these ambiguities are intentional. Intentional? 
Won't that lead to bad interpretations, people filling in the gaps with their own answers? Well, that's a risk the biblical authors took in writing this way. We all tend to impose our own cultural assumptions onto the Bible, but they apparently thought the risk was worth it. These oddities are really invitations into an adventure of reading and discovery. What do you mean? Well, for example, the strange promise about the offspring of the woman crushing and being bitten by the snake. That word offspring is a clue to pay attention to genealogies, which, lo and behold, run all through the biblical narrative. They trace the lineage from Eve all the way to King David and his offspring. And in the New Testament, Jesus is connected to the offspring of this royal line. Now, when you read the prophets, Isaiah connected this king to the suffering servant who would die on behalf of his people. And then in the book of Revelation, there's this symbolic vision. And can you guess? It's about a woman and her offspring. It's Jesus and his followers who conquer the dragon by giving up their lives. Yeah, so each part of the story there is loaded with ambiguities, but altogether it makes sense. And this is the literary genius of the Bible. It forces you to keep reading and then interpret each part in light of the others. This is feeling complicated. I don't know if I can do all that. Well, you're actually not expected to notice all of this by yourself or all at once. This dense way of writing forces you to slow down and then read carefully, embarking on this interactive discovery process through the whole biblical narrative over a lifetime of reading and rereading. Ah, okay. Meditation literature. Yeah, in Psalm 1, we read about the ideal Bible reader. It's someone who meditates on the scriptures day and night. In Hebrew, the word meditate means literally to mutter or speak quietly. The idea is that every day for the rest of your life, you slowly, quietly read the Bible out loud to yourself and then go talk about it with your friends, pondering the puzzles, making connections, and discovering what it all means. And as you let the Bible interpret itself, something remarkable happens. The Bible starts to read you. Because ultimately, the writers of the Bible want you to adopt this story as your story. So this ancient Jewish writing style, it must create unique types of narrative and poetry and discourse. Yes, and we'll explore all of those literary styles starting next with biblical narrative. Ooh, you guys just did like a semester of seminary right there. All in one little video. That's, uh, it's pretty dense stuff, and yet there's so much there that I thought that video kind of helped explain it better than I could. Let's, let's just try to geek out on this for just a second with one little thing. Remember from the original creation story, God created everything in how many days? Six days. Some of you guys got that right. Six days. And then on the seventh day, he... He rested, or more literally, he settled into his creation to rule and to reign with his human partners in a day that has no end. When you go back and read Genesis chapter 2, you see that seventh day, it doesn't ever say the sunset. The seventh day rest then becomes something ruling and reigning with God that we all are meant to long for. And rather than the number seven just being like a magical number, like it just means finished or it just means perfection, something to remember and reflect upon every time you see it. That's the whole point of it coming up so many times. So when we read that Moses, uh, that God led Moses further up Mount Sinai on the seventh day to meet with God, we realize that as a representative of all of Israel, he's being invited to rule and reign with God in a day that never ends. And if you follow that seventh-day element forward into the Gospels of Jesus, 
we see Jesus actually making seven statements about himself in the Gospel of John that we're going to unpack in our next message series as we're going through the Alpha stuff. The number seven throughout the scriptures is a reminder of the kind of life that we're all invited into every moment of every day. It's a life of trusting, dependence on God, participating in what he's doing in the world, empowered by his presence, co-working with him to bring his life, his light, his beauty everywhere we go. So does that give you a bit of an idea like how this meditational literature works? There's clues like that throughout the scriptures. All right, so if we go back to our story of Exodus, this third movement, Moses is at Sinai receiving these detailed verbal blueprints for a sacred tabernacle. Uh, One of our pastors, John, is going to be unpacking over the next couple weeks some of the detail of that. But let me give us some really practical kind of big overview. Yahweh is recreating a way in the tabernacle to be present with his people, the people that he's chosen to bear his name and represent him to all of humanity. You and I, in the same way, are invited to partner with God to bring something absolutely beautiful into the world. As a people of Yahweh, in a covenant relationship with Yahweh, as the people who bear his name and represent him to the nations, we are meant to partner with him to build something stunningly beautiful. In verse 8, have them make a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. He's inviting the people to build something along with him. Think about it. God doesn't need us to build a place for him to live. Like, we have to build places for us to live. But God doesn't need us to build a place for him. He, he, he built all of creation for us, and yet he invites us to build. He invites us to partner with him on this planet. And again, we'll get into this more detail next week, but God's given, every, he's given them everything they need to build it. As they go through and he lists out all the things that they're going to need, like, where did you think they got all that gold and silver and copper and, and, and you know, colored fabric and precious stones? Where did they get that all? They got it from Egypt. Remember, the Egyptians were giving them everything they had as they're on their way out. You read through the description of what they're building, it's absolutely gorgeous. The tabernacle is the place where the presence of God will dwell. So today, where's the place where the presence of God dwells? Do you remember Jesus' line from Matthew 18? One of the things he says, in the midst of conflict, in the midst of confrontation, in the midst of forgiveness, a whole chapter about that, he says, where two or three are gathered... There I am in your midst. It's like the Holy Spirit dwells within each of us, but the Holy Spirit dwells in a much more powerful way within us as community. 1 Peter chapter 2, the Apostle Peter writes this, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. He's using the same words right out of Exodus offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The community of God, the church, is where the presence of God dwells. And I think that God, as a church, I could unpack a lot more with that that I don't have time for, but I think as a church, God has given us everything we need to actually build something stunningly beautiful today. 
as a church that worships God, who loves and serves one another, and then who partners with God to bring his healing, his light and beauty and love to the rest of our neighbors. And the work that we do here together of leading, of worshiping together, of loving and serving our brothers and sisters, and the work that we do in the wider community of loving and serving all of our neighbors, all of that is partnering with Yahweh to actually build something beautiful. That's what he's invited us to do. We don't come to church just for ourselves to get our needs met. Well, they didn't sing my favorite song today, so I didn't have a good day. They didn't preach on my favorite passage. No, we don't come to church to have just our needs met. We come to church to actually be empowered to actually everywhere we go, in our neighborhoods, in our living rooms, in the places that we work, in the coffee shops, to actually bring the presence of God to the whole community. We're meant to be a set-apart people, a holy priesthood, as it were, kind of mediating the presence of God everywhere we go. And if you're going to partner with God like this, it actually requires this seventh-day rest. I know that as we've talked through Exodus, I've brought up Sabbath pretty much every time I've taught, and there's a reason for it, because it comes up in the passage over and over again. That seven-day thingy is a really big deal. It's the thing that marked Israel as followers of God. Remember, it didn't come just in the Ten Commandments. It was there. It's commandment number four, right? It comes way before that as they're given manna. He says, gather manna six days a week, but on the seventh day, I don't do that. Like, it's meant to be as practical as eating and drinking, as having a meal together. God gives them this directive when they're in the wilderness on the way to Sinai. It reminded them of how they began their origin story. And it continually reorients them to trust God's provision for their lives. Think think about it this way. Stopping from all of your regular work activity one day a week is like a resetting of your compass. It's like turning off the phone and turning it back on. Right? It solves all the problems. It actually solves all the problems in your life that way. It's a, it's a, it limits us. It's God's gift to us. It helps us stay grounded and humble, reminding us that you're not in charge of running the world. You never have been. It breaks our self-will. It helps us to grow in wisdom. And beyond that simple weekly rhythm, it's actually a way of living in trusting dependence on God that Jesus teaches us about so clearly. In our partnership with God, here's the deal. You're not the one doing the heavy lifting. God is. He's doing all the heavy lifting. He just invites us to join in with him in that. He's already provided everything that they need from the Egyptians. It's kind of amazing and then he's the one showing Moses like, what it looks like so that Moses can build it. He's showing him like, the things, the pattern, like what's to build. He's like pulling back the curtain of heaven, as it were, and allowing Moses to see that. Here's the deal. We're all invited to partner with God to create something that we could never accomplish on our own. Never accomplish on our own. It's way too beautiful. It's way too merciful that we could craft it on our own. Have you ever experienced that, being invited to do something that you know you can't do? Parenting is kind of that way. (laughs) I just spent two weeks with my kids and my granddaughters. 
And it was such a joy watching them like actually be good parents. And then at times getting up against the wall and go, I don't know what to do with these girls anymore. Raising girls is, whew, it's way different than raising boys, let me tell you. I raised two boys and one girl, and they got two girls. And there's, they, they kind of go into this infinite loop with each other once in a while, where it just builds and builds and builds. You guys with children know exactly what I'm talking about. My, my wife got them these little things where it's like this little gopher mole-looking stuffed animal that when you speak to it, it just answers, it just says the same thing back to you. And it was the funniest thing when they unwrapped it. They unwrapped it and they said something, it said something back, and then they said something, it said something back. And I go, oh, dang, it's an infinite loop toy. And they just went through the house with the thing under their arms saying funny things and having it say it back to them. And they didn't need other humans in the room. And it just built and built and built and built. Have you ever been invited into something that you know you don't know how to do? That's what God's always inviting us into. And sometimes it's something as simple, not as simple, but as normal as parenting. Sometimes it's something in work. Sometimes it's something that the Holy Spirit begins to speak to you and begins to give you vision for something that's way more than you could possibly do. And you know you don't have the ability to pull that off. Like, there's a couple of you, I'm convinced, that when I said, you should do alpha in the back room of a bar or in a coffee shop, there's a couple of you that went, oh, that would be so cool. And then immediately you kicked in with the other side of your head and you go, there's no way in God's green earth that I could do that. I was trying to think of a nice way to say that. (laughs) Do, Do you know what I mean? But I wonder if he might be inviting us to try some things that we absolutely know we could not do. But he can do. All Israel had to do was make themselves available. All they had to do was kind of jump into that. All right, I could talk about that for a long thing. Sabbath, rest, trusting dependence on God is key to participating with him. And then I love the way that God is recreating. There's something that happens in chapters 25 through 31 that unless you're looking for it, you're not going to find. I use the word recreating on purpose. He's recreating what was lost through a lack of trust. Between chapter 25 and the end of chapter 31, how many times do you think we read the Lord said to Moses and then told him some stuff? How many times do you think the phrase comes up, the Lord said to Moses? How many times? Just take a guess. We're reading Hebrew meditational literature. Take a guess. Anybody? Huh? 40. That's a good guess, but no. Way less. Seven. What's up with that? Like you're actually meant to notice that. The Lord said to Moses, the Lord said to Moses, the Lord said to Moses seven times. It's meant to go back to creation. There were seven days in creation. Now, People say, Michael, do you think that was a literal seven days? You're missing the whole freaking point of Hebrew meditational literature if you're trying to make it a science textbook. Forget that for a moment and realize that God is recreating a way to be present with his people in the tabernacle. He's recreating this. Now you think about what what lost that. It was this whole lack of trust that the things that God told them to do or to not do, they didn't trust. Now, God's just laid out for them 10 plus 42 more commandments for what to do and what's not to do. 
And it'd be really tempting to go, you know, I kind of like number one, two, three, four. I don't have time to take a break. Five, uh, whatever. I'll I'll pick and choose. I'll do the ones I want. Because I think I know better how to run my life than God knows how to run my life. Like, it's super easy for us to do that. I like this and this about the Bible. I don't like this and this. And sometimes it's stuff that we don't like that we just don't understand. And we don't take time to actually lean into it. Well, sometimes it's stuff that actually really confronts us. Like forgiveness. Like trust. It can be really hard to lean in some of those things in certain seasons of our life. And that's exactly what we're invited to lean into. And what if God knows more about how your life works than you? There was a pastor in my life, uh, as I was first becoming uh, a follower of Jesus, uh, named Ted. His, his name was Ted Fast. And he was a big dude, and he'd been a missionary in Africa for a number of years. He was a guy you didn't mess with, right? Like, I pushed back hard. You can picture me as a young dude. I pushed back hard on lots of people in my life. Ted, I had some respect for because he could just look at you and bend you in half like a pretzel or something, right? You just knew that was something he could do. And, uh, and I remember kind of pushing back with Ted about things the Bible said about things in my life. And honestly, it was things about trusting people, about forgiving people, about the place of anger. It's about the use of sexuality, like a whole bunch of stuff. I remember pushing back and going, I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like that. And one day, Ted, I loved cars and mechanic, mechanical things and all that and, and carburetors, cars and carburetors. That was like my life in high school. And, um, and Ted sat me down one day and he said, Michael, what if the Bible is more like an owner's manual than like a suggestion of how things might work? What if it's like an owner's manual? Like this is how you are going to work better if you begin to follow this stuff. And I thought, well, that makes sense. Because if you don't put the Holly four-barrel carburetor back together the right way, you get the jets going the wrong way, the thing just ain't going to work at all, right? You, don't, you might not know that. Fuel injection has taken all the fun out of fixing cars. But they're way more fun to start in the winter. And that began to make sense to me. Like, what if the one who actually created us knows how we work? For some of us, that's really hard to swallow. Like, well, I think I know how I work pretty good. Maybe. In a really cool redneck kind of way, you do. But what if there's more to it than that? Maybe in a really overtly intellectual kind of way, you do know a bunch about how you work. And what if there's way more to it than that? What if the one who made you actually understands way more about you in that regard? All right, so that's the whole thing about reestablishing trust in this whole deal. And then we are a people of the presence of God. Two more points. We're the people of the presence of God. The thing that makes the tabernacle so strikingly beautiful isn't just the wonderful artistic work, and I think that's pretty stunning. It's also the presence of God, God himself indwelling the tabernacle. It's very cool that once the work on the tabernacle was done, the same cloud that was on Mount Sinai fills the tabernacle. Skip to the end of Exodus. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled it. God's presence was so strong that even no couldn't go in. Listen, what makes the church so beautiful, what makes the church so strikingly beautiful isn't like the barn that we built. 
It's not the actual facility, no matter how beautiful a facility might be. It's not that. The thing that makes the church beautiful is the presence of God. Lots of folks, when they come to the vineyard, they will say, reflecting back on their first couple of experiences, they'll reflect back, and if you didn't have this experience, you're, you're, you're in no way diminished. But lots of folks have told me this, said, man, I couldn't quit crying my first few times coming. Like, I would just sit there, and the worship would start, and, and then some old dude would get up and say stuff, and then, and then there'd be some more worship and prayer, and I just couldn't quit crying. Do you know what's going on in those moments? It's not just you're overcome with emotion. It's that the presence of God is there. You're encountering the one who made you, who created you, who loves you so deeply, whose arms are wide open to you and is making space for you. Let me ask you a question. What will make the Duluth Vineyard unique in the greater Twin Ports among all the other social clubs, among all the other gatherings, all the other groups? What is it that makes the church distinct from every other charitable organization or even religious institution on earth as we move into the future? The church is not unique because we're better organized. <laughs> the church is not unique because we're better funded. We're not even unique in our ability to teach. There's lots of colleges and TED Talks you can you know, educate people better than the church does. What makes the church unique what makes the church worth doing is the presence of God. And the presence of God literally changes our lives. Uh, I love the, there's, there's a quote from Alan Kreider in a, in a book uh, I read a few years ago called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And here's what he writes. In the first two centuries of the church, it was not the Christian worship that attracted outsiders. It was the Christians who attracted them. And the outsiders found the Christians attractive because of their Christian habitus, their formation, in which their teaching and their worship had formed. The most powerful witness of the early church was the transformed lives of those who were following the resurrected Christ. And who does the life transformation? It's the presence of God. It's the Holy Spirit in our lives that actually transforms us and makes us different. One of the things that we as followers of Jesus should be able to look at in our lives every single year is how we're not the same as we were a couple years ago. Sometimes it's hard to see where you're going. I like New Year's resolutions and I hate them. And how many of you have already failed? Anybody already failed? <laughs> it's really hard to raise your hand for that one, isn't it? I missed a couple days of Bible reading. I'm gonna make it up somewhere maybe tomorrow morning. <laughs> but then I'll have missed three. Um, but what I love to do is I love to look back talking with the people in my life about how I'm not the same person I was two or three years ago. Because of the presence and the work submitting to what God's doing in our lives. Here's the deal. Living as people of the presence of God right in the middle of your current reality is going to feel intense from time to time as you go through that. And so... Here's my last point. We are people who are living in two realities at the same time. When Moses is on Mount Sinai, he's on earth. He's on a mountain. When you're in the tabernacle, you're in something made with human hands, right? But he's also experiencing and seeing heaven, the place where God dwells. It actually is a thin 
place, when the presence of God comes to the tabernacle, the same kinds of things happen. The, the tabernacle almost becomes like this portal to heaven. When the priest is in the holy place, the priest is in two places at once, two realities at once. This is where it gets intense for us. We're invited to live into both these realities at the same time. Here's Going back to the Apostle Peter, whom I quoted earlier, here's an invitation into that. Dear friends, he says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. He goes on to say, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I love the way Eugene Peterson translates this masterfully. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and... Oh, uh, I quoted it. Oh, in my notes, I put it both... Wait, I have to read it from the NIV. I mean, from the message really quick. Can you hold with me for a sec? I'm going to look it up because you guys have to hear this. Somehow when I pasted it, I pasted it wrong. Where am I at? First Peter. I love technology when it works. Two. Eleven. Okay, listen to how he says this. He says, there's far more... Uh, oh, it didn't go. I went to Philippians. Don't go to Philippians. <laughs> First Peter... First Peter 2. Let's try it again. Verse 11. Okay, friends, this world is not your home. Don't make yourself cozy in it. Don't, indul- don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. This is the way Peterson translates this. Live an exemplary life among the natives. Live an exemplary life among the natives so that your actions will refute their prejudices and they'll be one over to God's side, and they'll join in the celebration when he arrives. There's something about living as the people of God that we're living in two places at once. In the vineyard, we use this phrase around here all the time about how we live in the already and the not yet. We live in the already of God's kingdom, and yet it's not fully here. And it feels oftentimes like we want to acquiesce to everything going on in our culture, which actually isn't very helpful rather than aligning ourselves with who God is in every single area of our life, which always feels remarkably uncomfortable. And yet, I think that's something that God's invited us into. And so we want to take some time this year, and we want to explore, like, what does that look like? How do we do that? How do we live in the way that this, friends, this world is not your home, don't make yourselves cozy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. To become a Christian is to basically cross over from the world you've been living in into a whole different kind of world. And that's what Israel's experiencing. Jesus reveals a whole different way to, to live. It's like we have to cross over into a whole other dimension. And for you and I, the only way to do that is to connect with the one person who's the embodiment of the new world that God promised Jesus himself. And he's so welcoming to every single one. No matter what you've done, no matter how ashamed you are of what you've done or what you haven't done, he absolutely welcomes you. And as you cross over, you get to live in this way of life. This way of life becomes reality through the power of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God. And it's really interesting, as you continue to read through the Gospels, 
We see Jesus as he's about to leave. He promises the Holy Spirit. He's not going to leave us without his presence. Turns out he did everything he did in the power of the Spirit. And when we accept that invitation, when we submit to his authority over our lives, he gives birth to a whole new world inside of us. And a strange thing happens when he gives birth to that. It's like a new you from the future begins to stand up inside the old you that's living in your body. And it feels like a bit schizophrenic. It's confusing at first. The old you is still around, but the more you walk with Jesus, the more the new you arises, and it becomes, bit by bit, incredibly encouraging while it's confusing. And that's the language we use around here, already and not yet. It's completely normal, and it's totally weird. And then the Holy Spirit makes us agents of this new world, where we get to bring the power and presence of Christ everywhere we go. That what if the thin place where people get to interact with God isn't just like in a building in a worship service? What if it's you in the coffee shop when you say something like, can I pray for you right now? What if that place where God wants to meet others is you in the place where you work? What if it's you right in the living room I think that's what he's inviting us into. I think this whole thing in the back of Exodus is amazingly cool. We're going to look at a lot more detail, but that's kind of an overview of those chapters. I think it's amazingly cool. I think God wants to empower us to be a people of his presence, no matter how weird and awkward it feels. Why don't you guys stand up? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we welcome you into every part of our lives. Thank you for the way that you're inviting us into like a whole different way of living, a whole different way of life, empowered by you to be a people of your presence in our current reality. Just thank you for that. Friend, the ministry team, could you make your way up to the front? We love to take time to pray for one another here at the vineyard, and I just want to leave some space for us to pray for one another. We've been apart for a couple weeks, just meeting online, being with family and friends, and that's been really, really good. I think that what a few of us might really need is a bit of a, a, a reset in terms of just receiving some prayer from the body of Christ bringing some of the stuff that's been hard as well as some of the stuff we're celebrating before one another and getting prayer is actually really, really good and helpful. And even in this new year, I know that God's inviting you into some things. For some of you, it's very specific. He's inviting you into something that you know you probably can't accomplish on your own. Or you're in the midst of something. Or you've said yes to something. Come up and get some prayer. For others, I think God is speaking to you about maybe doing some alpha somewhere other than a church building or a regular small group. We want to pray for you. I think, God, you're not making a commitment to do it just to come get prayer. When you come get prayer, you're saying, I think God might be doing something here. And it scares the p-diddle out of me. Could you guys pray for me? That's a good thing. 
Holy Spirit, would you give us courage, even in this moment, to respond to you? For others, there's many of us who live in that um, discontinuity between the, the person that God's birthing in us and the person that we currently see in the mirror. And I think God, I think the Holy Spirit wants to meet you in that. That sometimes it feels like um, I'm not making any headway in this. And even when I said I'm different than I was two years ago, you immediately began to feel depressed because you don't feel like you're that different. Would you come up and get some prayer? We actually want to lean into those things with one another. So if that's you right now, come on up, get prayer. These guys are going to lead us in worship for a little bit. Other than that, God bless you. Thanks for being part of the vineyard. If you're online, you can just click on the Get Prayer button. We would love to pray with you. Other than that, have a great rest of your week. God bless you guys.